Before They Were Beatles, Episode 5, And The Boys Began To Play. This is a story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity, and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence, and at times, just sheer luck. It's a story of beginnings. The story of John, Paul, George, and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1, January 1957. As the Quarrymen refined their lineup and struggled to learn new songs, a new venue opened in central Liverpool as a showcase for more accomplished local musicians. On the 16th of January 1957, the Merseyside Jazz Union officially opened, drawing substantial crowds. It wasn't long before this latest hangout became better known by its unofficial name, The Cavern. The Cavern was owned and operated by Alan Sittner, the son of a local doctor and an old school friend of one Brian Epstein. Sittner, like many young men of the time, was a jazz enthusiast. He organised the occasional jazz night at the Temple Restaurant in Liverpool, but wanted to find a location with more ambiance suited to the sounds and mood of the jazz crowd. Jazz had filled the gap between the wartime big band sound and the emergence of rock and roll. By the late 1950s, jazz was the favourite musical genre for people in their early 20s, especially those of a more artistic inclination. In common with many other jazz enthusiasts from prosperous families, Alan Sittner made a pilgrimage to Paris, the epicentre of European jazz innovation at the time. There, in 1956, he became enamoured with one particular club, La Caveau. Sittner became convinced that a similar city centre cellar-type club would be a success in his native Liverpool, and on his return began to search for a suitable location. He found it in Matthew Street, or to be strictly accurate, underneath Matthew Street in central Liverpool. The area had been the original fruit-packing area of Liverpool given its proximity to both the docks and the city centre. Matthew Street at the time was a dark, dingy, little-used thoroughfare with seven-storey warehouses on either side, and as a consequence, little natural sunlight penetrated as far as the narrow sidewalk. Many warehouses had vacant cellars that had been used at one time or another for activities such as storing wine or egg-packing. During the war, most had been used as air-aid shelters and now lay in disuse. Warehouse owners offered rental on them for as cheap as 10 shillings a week. Alan Sittner rented the cellar spaces underneath numbers 8, 9 and 10 Matthew Street and began the task of converting them into a jazz club. Entrance was through a hole in the wall at number 10 and the descent was down a short flight of 18 winding stone steps. At the bottom was a table which acted as an admissions booth. The cavern's interior is familiar to many fans from the numerous photographs taken during the Beatles' later residence. It consisted of three arches along with a small stage located at the far end of the centre arch. The stage was built into an arch and the groups didn't have a terrific amount of headroom. If you look at photographs, the two group members stood nearest the wall are always bent over because the arch would touch the top of their heads. They probably had about six feet of usable playing space out of the 14-foot stage. Initially, seating was also supplied in the centre arch with dancing restricted to the outer archways. The club was alcohol-free with only soda being served from its small bar. Alan Sittner's original plan was to have traditional jazz on Saturday, modern jazz on Thursday, with Skiffle relegated to Wednesday night. Opening night was headlined by the resident house band, the Mersey-Sippy Jazz Band. Thank you. 
It's estimated that about a thousand people lined up in Matthew Street on that opening night, waiting to crash into the club, which had a nominal capacity of 600. But that was just a foretaste of what was to come. Part 2, February 1957. Over in the area known as the Dingle, on the edge of the river between the city centre and Garston, the skiffle craze was just as popular, although its proponents tended more towards country and western sounds than rock and roll. Repeating a scenario that was familiar all over the city, two friends decided to get together and form a group as a distraction from the run-of-mill day job. It was a chance to have a few laughs and maybe earn some beer money. Eddie Mills had a guitar and his next-door neighbour, Richard Starkey, had been hammering away on a cheap drum kit during the lunch break at work. Eddie came up with the stage name of Eddie Clayton and invited his friend, neighbour and workmate to join him to provide the rhythm section of the Eddie Clayton skiffle group. Footnote. Years later, Ringo would suggest that Eric Clapton used the name Eddie Clayton as a pseudonym for, a, for the work he did on the Beatles' White Album, most noticeably on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. He also used it when appearing on George Harrison and Ringo Starr's later solo albums. Other members for the Eddie Clayton Skiffle Group were recruited from their place of work, Hunt & Sons, a local engineering company that manufactured school playground equipment. The lineup was Eddie Mills on guitar, Richard Starkey on drums, Roy Trafford on T-chest bass, John Doherty on washboard, and the only non-Hunt's employee, Frank Walsh, on guitar. Richie's drum set had been procured for him by his stepfather Harry during a trip to Romford, and he dutifully transported it all the way back to Liverpool on the train. Richie was delighted with the second-hand set, a Broadway cat snare and cymbal outfit that normally sold for £10. This newest arrival on the Liverpool skiffle scene started out playing a few lunchtime sessions at the Works Canteen before securing their first gig at the Labour Club in Peel Street, Toxteth. From there, they took the familiar route of talent shows, where they failed miserably. Part 3. March 1957. The Quarrymen's rehearsals were continuing apace, but no bookings were forthcoming. Although they were starting to play at friends' parties, none of them were particularly good musicians. However, they were all be already beginning to notice that John could hold an audience. John's friend Nigel Wally, who had attended most of the practice sessions, even, even picking up the washboard on occasions, showed his entrepreneurial spirit by offering to manage the quarrymen. Nigel quickly came to the conclusion that the group would never get a paying gig if no one knew they existed. Playing in each other's front rooms wasn't the way to get noticed. So he had a series of business cards printed and posted in local shop windows. The cards read, Country, Western, Rock and Roll, Skiffle, The Quarrymen, Open for Engagements. The inclusion of Country and Western reflects the musical inc inclinations of both Nigel and The Quarrymen banjo player Rod Davis, but there's no record of The Quarrymen ever learning or playing any Country and Western style numbers. Skiffle was still the predominant style of song they performed, while the number of rock and roll songs in their repertoire was rapidly growing. Part 4. April 1957. 
Rehearsals at Eric Griffiths' house were becoming more difficult and the group was looking around for places to rehearse. John's interest in music and playing the guitar had brought him closer to his mother than he had been for a long time. When she heard of the search for a new place to practice, John's mother Julia offered the use of the house she shared with her common-law husband, John Dykins. The quarrymen soon relocated their rehearsals to the bathroom at Bloomfield Road in Allerton, where to their delight they found that the acoustics were superior. They must have made a strange sight with various group members stood in the bathtub or perched precariously on the edge of the sink and toilet as they played. Julia Lennon also occasionally joined her son and friends, adding her banjo playing to the already eclectic sound that the quarrymen produced. Around the same time, Pete Shotton's mother learnt from an overheard conversation with a local shopkeeper that there were plans for a garden fete at St. Peter's Church in nearby Walton sometime in July. Pete, along with his friend John Lennon, had attended Sunday school at the church when younger, so Mrs. Shotton knew the vicar, the Reverend Price Jones. Calling the Reverend, she suggested that Pete's band would make a good addition to the upcoming festivities. The vicar agreed on principle, providing he could see them play first. Part 5 May 1957. To fulfill the Reverend Price Jones condition and allow him to judge their suitability, the quarrymen were invited to play a few numbers for the youth club dances at St. Peter's Youth Club. This was a wise precaution on the part of the Reverend, considering that both Pete Shelton and John Lennon had been thrown out of the Sunday school because of their rebellious behaviour. The youth club performances became popular and people started turning up just to hear the quarrymen play. As their popularity increased, John became more demanding, asking for a microphone so he could be heard better. When a microphone didn't materialise one evening as promised, John told the quarrymen to pack up and left the hall without playing a note. Colin Hatton also recalls a gig somewhere around Penny Lane at an annual dance for the Vespa Scooter Club around this time. Unfortunately, no documentary evidence of these, John Lennon's earliest public performances, exist. In the summer, John approached the new headmaster at Quarry Bank, William Pobjoy, about the possibility of his group playing at the school's sixth form dances. Mr. Pobjoy had arrived at Quarry Bank the year before and realised that he had a problem with John Lennon. After talking to John, Mr. Pobjoy decided to try and get John to channel his energies into things that interested him, such as music and art. So following John's request, he booked the quarryman to play for the sixth form dance at the end of the school year. Most schoolboy skiffle groups of the time are playing in front of easy, friendly audiences comprised of friends at local church halls and school dances. In this respect, the quarrymen were no different than any of the other of the numerous bands that had arisen following the explosion of skiffle on the British cultural scene. Perhaps one factor that led them along the first steps to success was the enterprising spirit of Nigel Wally, for it was through Nigel that they took their first forays away from the church school circuit. After leaving school, Nigel started working as assistant pro at the local golf club. One of his first successes was to secure the group a booking to play at a golf club evening function. According to Len Gary, the group all wore large check shirts with white tassels and were joined for the first time by their friend John Duff Lowe on piano, solely due to the fact that there was a piano available on the stage. However, banjo player Rod Davis disputes this. Davis recalls playing the Chidwell Golf Course gig, but says he didn't meet John Lowe until 1984. Davis is also adamant that the group did not wear any tassel check shirts, but black jeans and white shirts. This caused Rod much worry because his parents didn't allow him to wear jeans and he had to buy a second-hand pair from a friend. However, both Hatton and Davis agree that the official payment for the evening's work was in the form of a good hot meal from the golf club dining room. A hat was passed around at the end of the set, which resulted in enough cash for the boys to think that they could actually get paid to play, rather than just do it for fun. As assistant golf pro, Nigel also caddied for several prominent local businessmen, and used the conversations on the links to leverage opportunities for his charges. A regular player at the club was a local doctor, Dr. Sittner, 
father of Alan Sittner, owner of the newly opened Cavern Club. And through this connection, Nigel Wally procured a booking for the Quarrymen to play a session at the Cavern Skiffle Night in the upcoming August. Part 6, June 1957. Over in speak, thanks to constant practice, 14-year-old George Harrison's skill on the guitar had now surpassed that of his brother and the capabilities of his own cheap guitar. Once more, George's mother was instrumental in furthering her youngest son's ambitions and scraped together enough money to buy a £30 Hofner President cutaway semi-acoustic guitar. George learnt to play his new guitar by constantly listening to a collection of Buddy Holly records owned by his friend Tony Bramwell. He also wired it to a crude amplifier mounted on an unpainted chipboard speaker cabinet. It wasn't pretty, but it was effective. Occasionally, George would ask the advice of his friend Paul, who had a greater theoretical understanding of music. They began to practice at both the McCartney and Harrison households, swapping ideas and discussing the merits of their various musical heroes. During the summer break, they even packed their guitars for a three-week hiking trip along the south coast of England, often sleeping rough on beaches to save a few shillings. On the return to school, the afternoon practice sessions would continue as both boys began to truant even more. This was not unexpected for George, but somewhat shocking for A-Stream class captain James Paul McCartney. With his new guitar in hand, George Harrison was quicker in securing a paying gig than the Quarrymen had been. In early June, George founded his own group called The Rebels and secured a gig at the British Legion Club in Speak. This gig was to be the one and only appearance by The Rebels, whose lineup consisted of George Harrison, his brother Pete and friend Arthur Kelly, all with guitars, and one of the two other friends who have yet to be identified who played a rhythm section with the obligatory tea chest and mouth organ. In fact, the whole gig came about by chance. George and his friends had been playing around with their new instruments at Arthur Kelly's house when they received a call from the promoter at the local Legion Club offering them an audition. Hastily christening the band and painting rebels across the front of the tea chest, they arrived at the hall to await their promised audition. As showtime approached, the scheduled band failed to appear and the rebels were co-opted onto the stage to provide the evening's entertainment. For this, they received 10 shillings each. Unfortunately, the rebels knew precisely two songs, but the promoter didn't seem to mind too much that his new group kept repeating the same tunes. George was so enthused about his first stage experience that on the following Monday, he spent the whole bus ride to school telling his friend Paul McCartney about it. Part 7, June 1957. As the first step on the road to becoming a paid professional group, the Quarrymen entered the local round of the Carol Levy's Discovery's Talent Search. Levy's was the producer of a top TV talent show and held heats in most provincial cities. The winners of the heats progressed to regional finals with a vague hope of securing a two-minute TV slot. The Quarrymen entered the heat held on the Sunday of 9th of June 1957 at the Liverpool Empire. With little to distinguish them from any of the other numerous skiffle groups that entered, they failed miserably. Their next gig turned out to be more promising for they had secured their first real paid engagement. The occasion was the 750th anniversary of the granting of Liverpool's Royal Charter, granted by King John in the 1200s. 
Hundreds of street parties were being held all over the city, with food, dancing and music. The quarrymen had been booked to provide the music for the celebrations in Rosebury Street. The booking had come about because the organiser of the Rosebury Street celebrations, Marjorie Roberts, had a son Charlie, who was friendly with the quarrymen drummer Colin Hanton. The quarrymen's stage for this auspicious occasion was the back of a local merchant's wagon. The wagon was provided by the resident of number 76 who also supplied the sound system, basically a microphone wired in through an old radio set that acted as a tiny and tinny amplifier. The quarrymen played two sets during the day's activities, during which John announced his arrival on the professional stage by, quote, acting cocky as if he knew he was good, winking at the girls as he played and showing a dry sense of humour. John's attitude soon attracted the attention not only of the local girls, but also members of a local gang from neighbouring Hatherley Street, who was soon heard to be muttering threats to get that Lennon. After the gig, Mrs. Roberts provided shelter for the group in her house, number 84. She calmly served the boys with tea and refreshments while they awaited a police escort. So in a strange foreshadowing of the events of Beatlemania many years later, John Lennon and his group were escorted to their transport, in this case the local bus, by the police called in for their own protection. Although in this case, it was a single policeman rather than the ring of police that would be required in later years. Rosebury Street won an award that day from the local Liverpool Echo newspaper for the best decorated street. To celebrate, they held another street party, but the quarrymen were not invited back, their place being taken by the Mersey-Sippy Jazz Band. In her book, John's half-sister Julia Bird claimed that the boys all wore different coloured shirts and called themselves Johnny and the Rainbows for this gig, but the name Quarrymen can clearly be seen on Colin Hanton's drums in the photo taken by Charles Roberts that day. The day's events were far from over. According to Len Gary, the Quarrymen's bass player at the time, at a party later in the evening, John and Pete Shotton, who were both possibly drunk, got into an argument which ended when John broke the washboard over his best friend's head. Shotton replaced the washboard but only played one more gig with the Quarrymen. This first paid gig was not the only landmark event in John Lennon's life that June. The stage was also set for another life change that would profoundly affect John and the development of the group that would eventually become the Beatles. Realising that John's talents lay outside the mainstream classification of the British education system, Quarry Bank headmaster William Popjoy arranged for John to interview for Liverpool Art College, and for once John was on his best behaviour and managed to secure a place at the college. John was always grateful to Mr Popjoy for getting him into art school. Many years later, replying to a Beatles fan letter from a pupil at Quarry Bank, he wrote, quote, Remember me to anyone who is still there, even to Popjoy. After all, it was he who got me into art school, so I could fail there too, and I could never thank him enough. 
In our next episode, we'll focus on just a single day, one of the most important days in rock history, July 6th, 1957, the day when Paul met John. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, The Merseysippi Jazz Band, Snake Rag, George Harrison and Eric Clapton, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, The New Rebels, Young Blood, and Elvis Presley, All Shook Up. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles or email me at alan, A-L-A-N, at beforetheywerebeatles.com. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrin Entertainment, a division of 4J's Group, LLC.